Father, we thank you for this amazing opportunity as your people to come together and to sing praises to your name and to hear from you. And what we just sang, Lord, is truly our prayer. Lord, we need you. Especially in this hour as we come to your word, we want to hear from you. And Lord, we need your grace. We need you to illumine our minds because we can read words on the page. But to understand them and comprehend them and believe them, Lord, that is your grace. And so I ask that you would come in a special way, Lord, and work through your word in every heart. Lord, you know each person and you know the circumstances that they're in and the heart with which they came here this morning. And only you can meet them and only you can minister to them as you can, Lord. And so I ask that you would do that. I pray, Father, that if there are any here who do not have a relationship with you as their Savior and their Lord, I pray that this morning you would save them. I pray that the gospel would go forth clearly and that you would, by your Spirit, cause them to be born again so that they may see the glory of Christ, see their own sin, and cry out to you for mercy. Bless us, I ask, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm honored to be invited back and to bring the Word of God to you this morning. On behalf of Folsom Bible Church, I want to say that we are thankful and grateful for the fellowship that we have and for the partnership that we have in the gospel. We thank you for your prayers. We thank you for your support. The Lord is doing his work. We want to say that we pray for you every week as we gather together for our meeting. We pray for your church. We pray for your pastors so that the ministry of the word would go forth from here as well. It is good because we are serving one Lord, right? We are one church. We're serving one God, and ministry goes forth from different places. And so he deserves all the praise and all the glory. I'd like you to take your Bibles and go with me to Galatians chapter 3. My desire this morning is to focus on verses 10 through 14 in the sermon entitled, From Curse to Blessing. Now, I want to focus on this passage, not because you've never heard this, you've never read this, you don't understand this, but because it is good for us to be reminded of these truths, especially today, as we come to the Lord's table, it is good for us to remind ourselves of what we were before we were saved and what Christ has done for us in his work. Now, before we look at the verses that are before us, verses 10 through 14, I want to briefly summarize how we get to this passage. If you know the book of Galatians, you know that in chapters 1 and 2, Paul outlines the gospel he proclaims and he defends his apostolic credentials. Now, he does that not because he's so concerned about his ego, but he does that because he's concerned about the gospel. You see, if you can dismiss Paul as a false apostle, you don't have to worry about anything that he says. But if Paul is genuine apostle, if Paul is true apostle of Jesus Christ, then you have to deal with what he says and with the gospel. And that's why he focuses so much on his calling, on his appointment to the gospels in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4 of this book is a doctrinal defense of the gospel that Paul proclaims. If you look at chapter 3, in a sense you can picture a courtroom where Paul is defending his case against those who say that you must keep the law of Moses and you must get circumcised in order to have a right relationship with God. And in a sense, Paul calls witness after witness to prove his point that salvation is by grace. We sang the song, there is one gospel in which I stand. It is the gospel of grace and there is no other gospel. You remember when he began the book in chapter 1, he says, If anyone comes to you and preaches to you a different gospel, let him go to hell. That's what he says. 
So he's so concerned about the gospel, so he brings witness after witness to prove that the gospel that he proclaims is the gospel of God. Now the first witness, if you look at chapter 3, first five verses, are Galatians themselves. Paul calls them to the stand, and he asks them questions that proved that the gospel by which they were saved was the gospel of grace. As a skilled attorney, he asks precise questions, and he gives them very little wiggle room. He asks them either-or questions. For example, look at verse 2. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In verse 5, he says, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Galatians, how did you get saved? Did you get saved by keeping the law or getting circumcised? Or because I came to you and I preached the gospel to you, how did you get saved? Galatians, how are you being sanctified? Is it because you keep some rules? No. You are saved by grace and you are sanctified by grace. And by the time Paul concludes with them and they're off the stand, Paul could have rested his case, but he does not. In verse 6 and 7, he appeals to the second witness. He calls Abraham. He calls Abraham because Abraham was a hero both for the Jews and the Judaizers. Both claim him as their own. And Paul asks the same questions of Abraham. He says, Abraham, how did you get saved? Abraham, how did you get justified? Abraham, how did you get sanctified? And in these verses 7 and 8, Abraham says, listen, I was saved at the age of 75 when I was called in Genesis chapter 12. And I got circumcised at the age of 99 in Genesis chapter 17. Therefore, circumcision had nothing to do with my salvation. And then I got saved at the age of 75. And what about keeping Mosaic Law? Well, Mosaic Law did not exist for another 645 years until Moses came. So keeping the law had nothing to do with my salvation. Abraham says, I got saved because I believed the word of God. I believed the promise of God. Again, Paul could have rested his case, but he does not. And then he calls the third witness in verse 8. And that's the scripture itself. Look at verse 8. He says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now, why does Paul do that? Paul does that to prove that the message that he's proclaiming is in line with Scripture. He appeals to Scripture because he's saying this was God's plan all along. Nothing changed. If you go back to the earliest times, if you go back to Abraham, how did Abraham get saved? Because he heard the message of the gospel. And it's interesting the way he puts it here. Preach the gospel. Preach the good news that in you all the nations will be blessed. Promise of blessing comes to Abraham simply because he believed the message. And notice he says, in you, all the nations will be blessed. Now, to be more precise, they didn't even have a concept of nations as we have it today. He says, all the nations, we're talking about tribes, we're talking about families. That's why you have Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the ethnos, of all the people's group, of all ethnic groups, like we pray today. Make disciples of all the nations because the gospel that I preach is not only for the Jews, but it is for the whole world, for all the nations and all tribes. As we come to our text, Paul calls the fourth witness, and that is the Mosaic Law. Paul is going to interrogate the Mosaic Law to prove that the law was never given to save anyone or to justify anyone or to sanctify anyone. 
That is not the point of the law. Now, if you're going to keep reading in chapter 3, there are many things that he says about the law. But I want us to focus on the big picture that Paul lays out in verses 10 through 14. Here's Paul's proposition. All who fall short of the law are cursed, and all who trust in Christ are blessed. That is basically what Paul will say in these verses. All who fall short of the law are cursed, and all who trust in Christ are blessed. As we unpack these verses, I want us to hang our thoughts on two points. First, in verses 10 through 12, we're going to look at the curse of the law. And then in verses 13 through 14, we're going to look at the redemption of Christ. So the curse of the law and the redemption of Christ. Join me as I begin reading in verse 9, and we'll read through verse 14. Paul writes this, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's begin with the curse of the law. Now just to clarify, when Paul uses the word law in this context, he's speaking of Mosaic law. He's not using it in general sense to refer to the entire Bible, because that would mean that Paul says everything from Genesis to Revelation brings a curse, and that's not the case. Now Paul is not against obedience to the commands of God. The question that Paul deals with in this text is what you obey and why you obey it. In this case, if you remember in the book of Galatians, these false teachers came in and they said, listen, Christ is very good. Christ died for your sins. Yes, it is good that you believe in Christ. But you know what? You need to get circumcised and you need to make sure that you're keeping the law of Moses. That's what they were instructing people in Galatia to do. They were saying you must obey the law. That is what you obey. And why you obey that? Because that will somehow improve your standing before God. Either that will save you or that will keep you safe. And Paul's point in this book is saying, listen, if you are a Christian, you are not under the Mosaic law. You are not under Mosaic law. Why? Because Christ fulfilled every aspect of Mosaic law. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you are no longer subject to it. You're definitely not made right by keeping the law. And you don't maintain your standing before God by keeping the law. Now I begin reading in verse 9 because I want you to see connection between these verses. If you look back at verse 9, this is Paul's conclusion from the life of Abraham. He says, so then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. You see, Abraham was blessed not because he kept certain rules. Abraham was blessed because he believed in God. And he says, everyone who has the same faith as Abraham had will be blessed with him. Now, if you look at verse 10, verse 10 begins with the word for. Because verse 10 is a supporting argument for what he claimed in verse 9. In fact, if you look closely at this section, there are two fours here. 
The first four says that you, it gives us the reason why Abraham-like faith is necessary for salvation or to obtain the blessings that Abraham had. And the second four gives the reason why all who are under the law are under a curse. Now let's examine them one at a time. First, Paul says, if you're going to be justified, if you're going to be saved, you must have faith like Abraham. Look at verse 10. As many as are of the works of the law are under curse. Now who's Paul talking about here? What does he mean by as many as are of the works of the law? Now specifically in this context, he's talking about these false teachers who came in and advocated keeping the law as a necessary step for salvation. But notice Paul does not stop there. Notice how inclusive the statement is and how inclusive this passage is. Look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law. Then he says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in it. Verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God. In a sense, Paul expands the circle and by the time he's done, this includes everyone. He says, no one is justified by the works of the law. You can read it this way. All people are under a curse. Now, what does it mean to be under a curse? When we think about curse, we're talking about someone who appeals to a higher authority or higher power to bring punishment and harm on someone else. You know, people appeal to power above or power below to bring harm to someone. Now, when Paul says here that all people are under a curse, he means that all people who fall short of the law are under divine judgment and are destined for eternal harm. Now, people are the object of this curse because he says all who are under the law or all who do not keep the law are under a curse. But the question we might ask is, who is the subject? Who is the one who's cursing them? And it is not other than God himself. Because the text says here, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. What does Paul get that? He goes to the word of God. He goes to the word of God and he cites a passage from Deuteronomy 27 where God himself is speaking. And this is declaration of God himself. You remember when the people of Israel are about to go into the promised land. And Moses gives this instruction to the generation that is about to enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy 27, 9, it says this, Then Moses and the Levitical priest spoke to all Israel, saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That's Mosaic law. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in a secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. And if you keep reading that chapter, it says, Cursed, 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 cursed. And it goes on and on and on, list to list all those curses. If you do this, you are cursed. And then it concludes in verse 26 with this. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. 
Then all the people shall say, Amen. That is the verse that Paul cites here in Galatians. Cursed is everyone who does not perfectly obey everything that God commands in his law. You see, Mosaic law was a conditional. Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. Which means God says, you obey me and I will bless you. You disobey me and I will curse you. And so he says, when you're going to get into the land that I tell you, these tribes will stand here and they will pronounce to everyone, keep the law, keep the law, and the Lord will bless you. And these tribes will stand as a witness here and they say, if you fail to keep his law, God will curse you, curse you, and curse you again. Now look at the specifics of this curse. Notice it says, cursed is everyone. There are no exceptions. No exceptions. To be cursed by God is to be destined for eternal damnation. Yes, there's a physical aspect of it when he's talking about nation of Israel. But if you are cursed by God, you are damned. Now, who qualifies for this curse? Everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, as I said, he's referring here to Mosaic law. Let's translate it this way. Cursed by God is everyone Who's not perfect? Isn't that what it says? Because it says here that if you do not perfectly obey every command of the law, you are under a curse. Therefore, if you are not perfect, you are under a curse. So Paul says here, cursed by God is everyone who is not perfect. Now here's Paul's logic. If you look at logically premise one, everyone who does not perfectly obey God is cursed. Premise two, no one perfectly obeys God. Conclusion, everyone is under a curse. Now when you say that everyone is under a curse, that's not a feel-good message, right? That is not something that you're going to be promoted for or celebrated. You know, people don't like that. If you go around and you tell people that you are under a curse, it's about as popular as, you know, you'd walk around and tell everybody, listen, every single one of you has a terminal cancer and you're about to die. You see, people don't want to hear that because people want to be affirmed. People want to be accepted. People want to be loved and celebrated. But guess what? If you actually have terminal cancer, you do not want your doctor to affirm you, to celebrate you, you do not want to come into his office and him telling you like, man, everything looks great. It's awesome. It's a beautiful day and you're doing well. You do not want that. Because you want your doctor to tell you bad news as soon as possible so that you can still do something about it. So you can start treatment. So you can figure out what can I do to avert this. And the reality is that every single person who falls short of God's law is under a curse. What does the law do? The law does not bring salvation. The law does not justify. The law does not improve you. The law condemns you. The law is that doctor that gives you that bad diagnosis. That's what the law does. Now, if that's not clear, Paul further explains in verse 11 that the law not only does not justify, the law cannot justify. That's not its purpose. It does not have that ability. Look at verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Now again, notice how inclusive this is. No one is justified. Now notice what Paul does not say. He does not say, listen, it is very difficult to be justified by the law. 
He does not say that there are easier ways to be justified. Or most people will not be able to justify themselves by the law. No, no one is justified by the law before God. Now, because we're still speaking of the same context, we're talking about him saying no one can be saved or sanctified by keeping Mosaic law. They might say, well, Paul, can you support that with the Bible? Well, he is writing the Bible, and he supports that by going to Habakkuk chapter 2. You notice it's a different font in your Bible, most likely, because this is a citation of the Old Testament in Hebrew in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Now, Paul expects that his readers will know what he's talking about. In a sense, whenever you're reading through the New Testament and you see those uppercase letters, it's like a hyperlink that you should click on and it takes you back to the Old Testament passage. And you need to know what surrounds the passage to understand why he's citing that. And that's exactly what he does here. He takes you back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, just briefly, what is the context of Habakkuk 2? In Habakkuk 1, as you open the book, if you want to go there, you can spend a minute there. Prophet laments and asks God why he has abandoned his people. They're not in a good place at this time. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 2, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. It is not a good time in Israel. And what is God's response? Look at verse 6. God says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Habakkuk, you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse because I am bringing Babylonians and they will destroy everything and everyone you see. Why is God bringing judgment on Israel? Well, because you remember Deuteronomy 27. Because in Deuteronomy 27, Israel made a covenant with God. And you remember they said, all that the Lord said we will do and will obey. And they go to their land that the Lord has given to them, and they worship all kinds of idols and all kinds of God, and they turn on God, and God says, you remember those curses that I promised? Well, they're coming. They're coming, and you're going to be taken out of your land, and you're going to be, your temple is going to be destroyed, and you're going to fall apart. Why? Because I promised to curse you. It was a conditional covenant. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is how Habakkuk responds. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision yet is yet for appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with me, but the righteous will live by faith. What is God's response? Yes, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming and you wait for it. It will not be averted. It will not be set aside. But you know what? There is one way to escape. There is one way to live. But the righteous shall live by faith. 
Judgment is coming, but there is only one way, that is to believe in me. Does this not perfectly align with the book of Galatians? Where he says, all are under a curse, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There is only one way to escape that curse. There is only one way to escape that judgment, and that is to have the faith that he described earlier in this chapter. And you see, the reason why it is by faith, because the law does not produce righteousness. The law cannot make you righteous. In fact, if you go back to Galatians chapter 2, in verse 21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, he's saying that if it is possible for you to be righteous by keeping the law, then guess what? Jesus would not have to come. Jesus would not have to come and he would not have to die because you could do it on your own. Because you could keep the law. But righteousness does not come through the law. And that's why the sacrifice of Christ was necessary. Now the law perfectly reflects the righteousness of God. But its goal is not to make you righteous. But its goal to show you how unrighteous you are. You are justified by faith alone. And you are sanctified by faith. Now someone may object. Well listen, it takes faith to obey the law. Does it not? And that's what Paul says in verse 12, that the law has to do with not believing, but with doing. Look at verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. You see, when God made a contract with the nation of Israel, he does not say, listen, you have to believe in all the commandments that I tell you to do. Is that what he said? No. He says, you must perfectly obey the commands that I give to you. Because the text says, he who practices them shall live by them. You will live if you practice. You will live if you do. But guess what? What if you don't do? You don't live. You see, the principle of the law is diametrically opposed to the principle of faith. Now, to be sure, there is righteousness in the law. There is righteousness in the law because in Romans chapter 10, Paul says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. Well, here's the question. What is the righteousness that is in the law? The righteousness is perfect obedience to that law. Guess what? If you can perfectly obey all the time everything that God commands in the law, you'll be righteous. I mean, is this not how Jesus accumulated his righteousness? By 33 years perfectly obeying the law in every respect. And therefore he was perfect. And therefore he was righteous. But guess what? Who can do that? Nobody. Can anyone obey the law perfectly from the moment that they're conceived to the moment they die? No one, because we are conceived as sinners, and we live as sinners, and we die as sinners. And therefore, no one can perfectly obey the law. The law has to do with your deeds, but justification has to do with your faith. You see, you can never attain or maintain righteousness by your deeds. If you could, Paul already said, Christ would not have to come. So what is the bottom line here? Paul says, Mosaic law cannot save but it can only condemn. It brings condemnation and it brings a curse. It condemns because it cannot justify it. And it cannot justify it because it cannot make one righteous. And later on in this chapter, he's going to say that it cannot make you righteous because it cannot give you life. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, 
then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But guess what? Such law was not given. The law was not given that it was able to impart life. It does not impart life. Law condemns. Law is a mirror that shows you how messed up you are. That's what the law is. Now, if you read this text, and if you just stop here, this should leave everyone helpless and hopeless. Because everyone would include you and me, and include every, includes everyone. That's what the point of this passage is. That's what the point of this verse is. Everyone who looks at the law, everyone who looks at the mirror, at the standard of God, ought to say, listen, Lord, I can't do this. I can't obey this. I can't be perfect. I can't be righteous. And when you come to that place, that's when you're ready for the good news that comes in verse 13. That's when you're ready to receive the redemption which is offered to you in Christ, beginning in verse 13. You can say that these two verses is the bad news that one must hear, but then there is a cure. Then there is a cure. Yes, you're told you have a terminal cancer and you will die, but guess what? There is a cure for your cancer, and that is verses 13 and 14. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us. Now just stop there. I mean, let these words just sink in. Christ redeemed us. We did not redeem ourselves. Christ did it. Now, when we're talking about redeeming, we're talking about paying back or buying back. The word was used for redeeming slaves. You would go to a slave's market and buy his freedom. You would redeem the slave. You see, the law shuts you up, and the law condemns you. And the law says you are unrighteous, and you are under God's curse. And Christ comes and redeems you from that slavery. Now, who's us? Christ redeemed us. Well, us includes everyone who has the Abraham-like faith. Us includes everyone who places faith in Christ. Now, notice what Paul does not say. He does not say that Christ tried to redeem us. You know, he did the best he could. Like a fireman on 9-11, ran into the building trying to save as many lives as he could. Or he does not say, you know... Christ gave us an opportunity to redeem ourselves. No. Notice this. Christ redeemed us. When Christ said on the cross, it is finished, guess what? It was finished. Because he says, Christ redeemed us. It was finished. Redemption was secured by the work of Christ. Now, what did Christ redeem us from? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's the curse that we just talked about in verse 10. Is that condemnation that says, you are not perfect because you have violated the law of God. As a result of violating God's law, there's judgment. There's penalty. The wages of sin is death. And when we're talking about death, we can talk about it in a couple different senses. We can talk about spiritual death. Because you remember when God spoke to Adam, he says, the day you eat of it, you'll die. And he died spiritually. He died spiritually, and because one is spiritually dead, eventually he physically dies. And the person who physically dies in the state of spiritual death will suffer eternal death, as the book of Revelation tells us. Now, when it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that whole penalty was removed. That whole penalty was taken away. You were cleansed. You were washed. Curse 
of the law brings death. And to be delivered from that is to be delivered from spiritual death and to be delivered from eternal death. And guess what? If you are in Christ today, even physical dead is not a threat to you because it will only usher you into the presence of Christ. So when he says here, Christ redeemed us. Remember Jesus says, I came so that you may have life and have life abundant. Why? Because without him, you're under a curse and you do not have life. Now, how did he redeem us? Paul says in verse 13, having become a curse for us. That's substitution. Why do we believe in this? Because it is clearly taught in the Bible. Notice this phrase, for us, in behalf of us, in our place. Christ stood in our place and he absorbed the wrath that was mine and that was yours for every infraction of God's law. See, the Father treated Jesus as if he committed every sin you and I have committed. The Father poured his divine wrath on the Son because of the sins that we have done. See, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, it destroys pride. It destroys pride because it tells you that there is nothing you can offer to God that will make you acceptable to him. So regardless of how good you think you are or how much good you think you can do, none of that is sufficient. Only those receive grace who acknowledge that there is nothing that I can bring. There is nothing that I can give. There is nothing that I can do that will make me right before God. Doctrine of substitution says that, listen, you need to look to the one who did it all for you rather than trying to make it on your own because you can never, ever make it on your own. And you see, until you recognize that you can't make it, you will not trust the one who did it all for you. Paul says, Christ redeemed us by by becoming a curse for us now this was vividly pictured in old testament sacrificial system because you read through the bible and you read three quarters of your bible is old testament right and you have these people who broke the law and then god gave sacrificial system where they had to bring an animal had to bring it to the priest had to sacrifice it shed the blood in order to have atonement for sin they had to sacrifice the animal because We read in Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the blood of the animal provided a temporary relief for those who have sinned. Now I say temporary because Hebrews tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So in a sense, you can picture it this way, from Adam until Christ. All of these sins for which animal sacrifices were offered, they were taken away and temporarily covered by the blood of the animals. It's like you take them and you put them in a certain storage. And then when Christ hung on the cross, the door was open and all that sin of all those who were redeemed in the Old Testament was placed upon Christ. And the sins of those who will believe from from the cross until the end of time were placed upon Christ and he paid the penalty for those sins so that Adam, Moses, David and everyone else would be justified, not because they offered a sacrifice, but because that sacrifice was pointing to ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who paid for their sins and therefore, and then gave them his righteousness. That's why it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because he was cursed by the Father who poured his divine wrath on the Son so that we would not be. Now we know he was cursed because Paul tells us here he was hung on the tree Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now this quote is from Deuteronomy 21, where Moses writes this, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, 
and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not define your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. You see, he says in the Old Testament there were laws that demanded capital punishment. And so he says if someone violates that law and you kill him, usually it was by stoning, then they would take that corpse and they would hang it for everyone to see that this man is cursed by God. Now, he was cursed not because he was hanged, but he was hanged because he was cursed. And Paul takes this picture and he says, you remember Christ? When he hung on that cross, that cross was an illustration, was a picture that God cursed the Son. God poured His divine wrath on the Son. He became cursed for us. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul adds, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That is substitution. That is Christ standing in our place and receiving the penalty that was yours and mine. What is the result? What is the result? Verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, he says Christ went through that ordeal by taking our curse upon himself so that we would receive the blessings that were promised to Abraham. And what was the promise to Abraham? Well, if you could just go back to verse 8, the scripture preached the gospel that God would justify Gentiles by faith. You see, this blessing is nothing short of justification. It is nothing short of salvation because in that passage he says, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, how do you get access to this blessing? It is by faith. Because he says here in our, in our passage, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It is not by works that you get justified. It is not by anything that you do. It is simply by looking with faith to the one who did everything. Faith brings blessing. And notice it is the promise of the Spirit. Why? Because you will never, ever believe in this message unless the Spirit of God works in your heart. Unless the Spirit of God causes you to believe and opens your eyes to see your sin and the glory of Christ. And guess what? When He does, then you, oh, you're like a newborn baby that begins to cry. And that cry is the Christ, cry of repentance when you're looking to Christ. But it is the Spirit who must work And the only way for you to go from a curse to a blessing is to cry out in faith to the one who took your curse upon himself. See, that's what we're going to celebrate at the table right now. We're going to celebrate here because this is a reminder of that sacrifice that Christ has offered on our behalf. Let me ask you, is this your story? Is this your story that you can say, yes, I was under a curse, but now I am blessed, and it is all because of Christ? I want to close our time with two quotes. One from Charles Spurgeon, and another from John Bunyan. In his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon describes his pre-conversion state in this way. He writes this, The law seemed also to blight all my hopes with its stern sentence. Cursed 
is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Only too well did I know that I had not continued in all these things, so I saw myself accursed, turned which way I might. If I had not committed one sin, that made no difference if I had committed another. I was under the curse. What if I had never blasphemed God with my tongue? Yet if I had coveted, I had broken the law. He who breaks a chain might say, I did not break that link and the other link. But if you break one link, you have broken the chain. Oh me, how I seemed shut up then. I had offended against the justice of God. I was impure and polluted. And I used to say, if God does not send me to hell, he ought to do it. I sat in judgment upon myself and pronounced the sentence that I felt would be just. So the law worried me and troubled me at all points. It shut me up in an iron cage and every way of escape was effectually blocked out. You see, that's what verses 12 through 13 ought to do in your life. They ought to bring you to this place where you say, I have violated God's law and therefore I'm condemned. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was also once in this state. But listen to how he describes his deliverance. He says, but one day, as I was passing in the field, fearing lest all was not right, suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say was my righteousness. So that whatever I was and whatever I was doing, my God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw moreover that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous. Better not yet my bad frame that made me righteous, my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs and deeds. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. Now went I home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. What a picture. My righteousness is in heaven. And God stands there and he looks at his son and he says, Tim is righteous because my son is righteous and Tim has his righteousness. You are righteous and you are accepted because you are in Christ. Not because you're good. Not because you perfectly obey everything. Again, this is not justification for loose living. No. But our acceptance and our standing before God is rooted in the work of Christ because we receive His blessing because He took his cur- our curse upon Himself. If you believe and if you trust, you have the righteousness of Christ. Now, if that describes you, that is an opportunity for you to come to the table right now and to celebrate. Because if you are brought near, if you are made his own, he invites you to come and celebrate your deliverance because that's what this is. If that doesn't describe you, you are still under a curse. But guess what? If you believe and if you trust in Christ, you will receive the same blessing. And just like Bunyan, he says, I went home rejoicing because I understood the gospel, the gospel of grace. There is one gospel in which we stand, right? And it is the gospel of the grace of Christ. Believe it, celebrate it, and spread it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you that our righteousness is in heaven. That Christ has taken and paid for everything that we have done or will do until the day we die. We thank you that we are accepted because of his work. And I ask that you would give us grace to live in light of that.
Help us to live holy lives reflecting what we are positionally so that you would receive glory from our walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.